0: Kia ora koutou Tour. Welcome to The Hoon, where co host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics, and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Well, welcome in everybody. Hey, it's great to see you, Peter. It's great to see you too, Bernard. In your front room, looking out at the wonderful sea, it's not quite um, a sparkling day, but uh, a big one, uh, a huge week of news to get through, including a whole brand new government with a bunch of bunch of agreements and mm. plenty of news breaking all over the place.
1: Yeah, and we've just had Henry Kissinger die at 100 mm. years of age, so we can talk about him, I suspect, with Robert Patman, including how he got the Nobel Peace Prize for bringing the Vietnam War to an end, and and by bombing Cambodia, which is always a, a bit of a scandal. Now, but you've been to a book launch. We've both been to a book launch this afternoon, which is why
0: we're in the same place. Yes, a launch uh, by Mira mialati who is a, a media academic, a former financial journalist who's just launched a fantastic. I was going to say little book, but it's a jam-packed full of info. Mm. It's one of those uh, Bridget Williams books, formats, very simple paperback, good value for money. And it was all about the uh, the crossover in Aotearoa uh, between the traditional media and the platforms, the social media and search platforms of Google, Facebook, Meta, Alphabet. Mm-hmm. and A really good uh, set of insights into uh, how those relations have developed, how it's changed the media, and uh, you and I both uh, e- enjoyed uh, talking about it and um, putting our own little uh, perspectives on it.
1: Yeah, you, you told us an, an anecdote that I don't think I'd heard from you before about finding your own name on a list of people to be hung as traitors to New Zealand, with, with, uh, held by a chap, chap who was holding a noose during the parliamentary Ground invasion. I mean, that sounded pretty extraordinary. But you told it beautifully. Do you want to tell people a tiny bit about that? Because I thought you just—it was a very elegant way to put yourself in the story and in the without without being creepy.
0: Yeah. So when I was at the Parliamentary Press Gallery, when the occupation of Parliament's grounds was on, being a curious Juno and knowing that I wasn't very well known, that not many people would know my face, hmm. I went into the uh, throng of protesters who. You know, at various points had been grumpy, angry, uh, but also in a celebratory and jovial mood. And whenever I went into the crowd, that was often the case. Mm. Um, But I I went in because I'm just naturally a nosy parker and curious and went with my glasses just to read what was on the signs, to see who the people were, to maybe have a chat with them and find out what were they really thinking. Were they really saying these things? Because there were people chanting about killing the Prime Minister and having trials and hanging people. And I stumbled across a guy with a sign and uh, a, a yard arm with a noose. Now, I don't think it would have been a practical and uh, effective uh, mm. means of delivering judgment. But highly, but highly symbolic. Sim- yeah. Symbolic, yes. And there was a list of names that were going to be tried and executed, which he was very proud of and um, he was he was very... Chirpy, actually, I have to say. I wandered up and put my glasses on and read the list of names, and there were the usual suspects, I suppose you could say, the Prime Minister, Grant Robertson, Ashley Bloomfield. And then I started to stumble into names in the media, people that, you know, I work with Mm. and sit Mm. next to every day and put my hand up and try to get questions in every day. Uh, You know, first Tova, then you, Jessica, then Bernard. And um, I read down the list, wondering who the heck was there and the usual people you'd expect, the the famous, you know, media Mm -hmm. and journalists, the people at the front of the national story about the uh, COVID lockdowns and the um, mandates and all of that. And then I stumbled across this name. I couldn't quite believe it. Bernard Hickey. Mm. (laughs) And I thought, really? Surely not. I, I had written a quite assertive piece very early on the second day of the protest saying that um, this was something we should take seriously, that I actually thought a lot of what was being done and said was a national security threat, mm-hmm. and that um, we'd been too complacent. Yeah, people seem to think they could say just about anything. And so when oh. you said
1: to this chap, do you really want to kill Bernard Hickey?
0: Because <laughs> I, I he, he, he hadn't recognised me. And he said, oh, actually, I'm not sure who is who is he, what does he do? And I said, oh, isn't he the guy who does the, the all the stuff on fixed versus floating mm-hmm. and what the official cash rate's doing? I said, do you really want to kill him? And he said, oh, no, not not him, but Jacinda and All Ash the others, other, absolutely. <laughs> yes, yeah. and then I just, I said, hey, dude, and he was having a bit of, a good time actually, and so I didn't feel like it was an uncomfortable A, a good moment. time it was...
1: inciting people to hang, you know,
0: New Zealand's <laughs> yeah, yeah. finest financial journalist. Yeah, I said, hey dude, actually, do you know I'm Bernard Hickey? You really mm. don't want to kill me, do you? He said, oh no, not, not you. you, you seem okay, it's all right. And um, it just struck me in that moment that we had crossed into a different place mm. where people I thought I knew, people who were my neighbours and relatives and friends, people in our country had been infected by something really foreign. I, I just think that's not us. Yeah, and, yeah exactly. Um, and it hasn't gone away and it wasn't a one-off. And, you know, it's the reason, part of the reason, the Prime Minister's not there anymore. Mm. People need extra security, you know, and our place is different, in part because of the way that, that those platforms have um, become part of our lives. Yeah. Yeah do you, do
1: you think but so we we're, we're going to talk i think when when Josie comes on a little bit about about the first few days of the of the new government but i think we you know we should talk about some of this because the some of the makeup of that government and some of the language used by some of the members of that government very much fits with that kind of mm-hmm. uh, undermining attacking very very sort of darkly aggressive approach i thought and i i i'd, I'd like to Discuss that with Josie. What else are we going to do? We've got got Catherine coming to talk about the environment shortly again.
0: Yes, and obviously a huge week for the climate uh, change story with the COP28, some massive scoops that have come out this week, which we'll Mm -hmm. talk about. Uh, Obviously a new climate change minister who's off to COP and uh, isn't in the Cabinet, and uh, a whole bunch of new policies we can talk about that have come through from the new government. Obviously when we last had the Hoon last Thursday, we we knew there would be a government, but we hadn't mm-hmm. had the details of the coalition deals. I was lucky enough to be in Wellington on Friday at the news conference where the deals were announced and signed, and saw the beginnings of Winston Peters deciding to... To be Mr. Nasty. Yeah, to be... Uh, he went further than just, you know, being a troll or, or mm. being, you know, taking the mickey or, you know, making fun. He was being downright mean and ugly, and... I hadn't seen that before in public from him in that sort of way and it continued of course through Monday and Tuesday we'll, we'll talk about that and and of course there's huge things happening overseas in, um, in Gaza and elsewhere.
1: Yeah well, we'll talk a little bit about Kissinger, Kissinger with, with Robert Patman I imagine. Um, I don't I don't think we'll probably get to Charlie Munger, the 99 year old who died yesterday who was the you know the, mm. the sidekick for Warren Buffett but you know there's, there's a couple of these old codgers um, pegging it this mm. week. Yeah. Here's Catherine.
2: Kia ora, te <laughs>
0: <laughs> Kia ora. Great to see you, Catherine. <laughs> you too. Um, um, we are really interested in what's happening with the, you could argue, the biggest story of our lifetimes and the one that's not going to go away and is bearing down on us in all sorts of ways. COP is starting tonight. As far as I'm aware, 70,000 people have rocked up to Dubai to talk about the climate with each other. And uh, your excellent preview piece uh, went out on Monday. Thank you very much for that, which everyone's uh, welcome to see. This was put out for all uh, as part of your work as our climate correspondent, and you and I had a chat in the uh, uh, podcast that goes with it. i recommend people have a look at that. I'll put a link in today's uh, podcast for that, and we've got another one coming out tomorrow morning, which um, it will be a weekly affair. Catherine, um, what... Was the big news in the days leading up to COP about exactly who's running it and what they're doing with it?
2: Yeah, so it's been um, quite a week of revelations. The um, So the Centre for Climate Reporting and the BBC got together to report on some documents that came. They were leaked documents from a whistleblower that showed the president of COP28, Sultan Al Jabir. Lobbying for oil and gas deals while on UN climate summit time. So he had um, he was getting briefing notes from the company that he heads up in his other day job, uh, which is I think the Abu Dhabi oil and it's gas. It's called
1: it's Adnoc, the, the 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 Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. Yeah, which owns everything in, in Abu Dhabi pretty much. Yep. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so he's been getting briefing notes from them to take to his
0: climate summit meetings with um, with other countries. It's extraordinary when you think about it. I mean, this is the guy that's in charge of a massive United Nations effort designed to reduce climate emissions, designed to look at phasing out oil and gas, who in the very moment that he's organising to do this is on the side going, hey, you know about this climate change thing? Actually... Have I got a deal for you? Some fantastic LPG. You just need this stuff as a transitional fuel, as a bridging. Tra- yeah, but also what's yeah. interesting about this, is, Bernard, I read a very similar story
1: yesterday about about Saudi Arabia having a Saudi Arabia has a. a, a I think it's called a, It's it's been it's been blamed on a on a translation area, but it's essentially about sustaining the consumption of oil as the West reduces its consumption of oil. They're trying to make sure that Africa, the global South, continues to grow economically through the use of increased use really or for them of fossil fuels. It's, it's quite an extraordinary good dichotomy, which, you know, may have some, may have some merit, particularly the trans you know, those of us who think that gas is a transitional fuel, but, um, and also that, you know, some of those countries have a right in a sense to catch up, but it is pretty extraordinary to do that on the wings of, of COP28, it seems to me.
2: Yeah. And one of the, um, one of the ways that he's squaring those kind of really conflicting goals of the two outfits that he represents is through carbon capture and storage. So Mm. they're basically out there saying, oh, well, we'll, you know, the plan and the argument at COP is between phasing out fossil fuels and phasing down fossil fuels. And Mm. when they talk about phasing down, what they're saying is, oh, well, we'll use carbon capture and storage on on the burning, you know, on the coal plants and so on, where we're burning fossil fuels. And so we only really need to reduce the ones where we're not doing that. And alongside mm. of that, they're planning a huge increase in investment in CCS. Of course, we've talked about this before, but there's there's a lot to say that maybe that, that plan isn't going to work so well with CCS. And even if it does mm. in the long run, there's limited storage. So, do you want to use it all up, burning through the remaining fossil fuels and removing and liquefying the carbon dioxide from that and storing it underground, or are hmm. you going to use it later for BECS, or are you going to use it later for to draw down de- um, um, the emissions from permafrost that's melting? Like, hmm. there's a lot of competition actually for that space Absolutely. in the long run. So it's not clear that they'll be able to scale it up to the scale that's needed. But even if they can, there are still competing. Um usages for the space where you would store mm,
0: it. Mm. And it's clear too that the you know the rise in the oil price since the outbreak of the Ukraine war has delivered this huge cash injection to those uh, countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. and of course, luckily it's not just oil for them, it's gas because mm. um Russia's cutting off gas to Europe has forced Europe to find LNG uh, from uh, the Gulf, and from Australia actually, uh, which means that that cash they're using, they are now using to launder their reputations, with sports washing in particular, hmm. but all of this sort of stuff, and and New Zealand uh, can't help but being involved. Um, I think our best boxer, Joseph Parker, is about to um, have a big fight. Almost overnight, the global boxing industry has shifted to to Saudi mm. Arabia because they can pay enormous amounts to to bring people there. And of course, you know Emirates Team New Zealand, which should be defending the Americas Cup, out on the sea that I can see through your window, Peter, is going yep, to be doing, doing it. is
1: doing so in the on the Mediterranean, off Barcelona, instead. Yep. Yeah, no. And um, on, on the other hand, we can now fly to New York from London quite happily um, on chip fat. So, you know, oh, yeah. everything's good and we don't need to worry about flying
0: anywhere anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, there's... Um, there's going
2: to be a hell of a lot of scrounging around for you, you chip fan <laughs> <Yes>, exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you'd have to hope someone's put it through some sort of strainer. I really mm. hope yeah. that, that before it goes into the... Into the, the floaties jet. out. <laughs> that's right. Now, the other thing that's interesting about COP, of course, is New Zealand sending a few people, including not just the new minister the old minister too.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a good another job sharing exercise going on. We're we getting good at the old two for ones.
0: Yeah. And so um uh, we're going to see uh, the new minister go there as well as James Shaw. And uh, unfortunately though this is a new minister who's going to be outside of uh, cabinet. Simon Watts is the new minister for climate change. I'll put a link to an interview I did with him about 45 minutes long at the Climate Change and Business Conference about a month before the election mm-hmm. um, to give you an idea of the the policies they've come up with. Luckily, I think in the, the deals that were done with ACT and New Zealand First, we didn't see too much of a watering down of a relatively weak national position. But um, Well, we, we did we of course, did see the relaunch of offshore oil and gas exploration, right? Yeah. Um, Catherine, um, ha, ha, how did the, the new government's climate policies come across
2: yeah i mean it, it's interesting that the climate change portfolio is outside of cabinet but also so is the conservation and environment portfolio so but there's... is
1: that a change because funnily enough i i asked um if people will remember dr michael bassett i was i'm visiting him for a for a thing the other day and I asked him about this and he said well james shaw was outside the cabinet too
2: yeah, well, James Shaw was outside of Cabinet because he was not part of the government. So mm. they kind of had to move him outside of Cabinet because there wasn't the same, there wasn't a coalition agreement with the Greens. They weren't part of government. Mm. Um, mm. So that's that's pretty much the only reason he really had to sit outside of Cabinet. You would expect them to move that
0: portfolio back into Cabinet where mm. it has been in the past. So. The, the national would say that uh, nicola willis is the associate um, climate change minister however it is worth knowing that uh, mark doulder uh, newsroom's climate and many others things correspondent managed to get a concession out of uh, christopher luxon in september that that luxon would put climate change into the cabinet so uh, he's that's one of his first reneging so presumably that was a that was a concession to,
1: to Winston, who doesn't really believe that climate change is, is, is as serious as we th- seem to think it is.
0: Yeah, and and Winston Peters' um, position on this matters, not only because, as we expected, he was he's going to be the foreign minister, and a big chunk of his role is going to be talking about climate change, arguing for New Zealand's positions, and also mm. appealing to the Pacific not to jump into China's boat and to stay with us because we're serious about climate because that's the existential mm. threat to our Pacific neighbours, Except that we're not. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, we're still waiting to hear from the government how they're planning to meet their 2030 targets and the 2050 net zero targets, because they have said that they are going to. Um, what we're waiting to see is the details
0: mm. of how, how that's going to come about, which are l- largely absent so far. That's right. And uh, interestingly, the... Report from the Climate Commission to the government, which was due to be delivered before the end of the year, has now gone to the new government. And we should hear next week a bit more about what the Climate Change Commission says about us meeting our uh, targets, not just for Paris, but for the, um, the extra commitments on top of that. And uh, no doubt we'll find out more about that this week. The other thing, uh, Catherine, just just finally on the climate that is bubbling around is what's happening with the scale of the damage from climate warming and how the modelling, particularly in the financial sector and the banks, is now increasingly being challenged by the science and the record of what we've seen in the last Mm. couple of years in response to the warming climate. It looks like the damage from uh, our floods and storms in particular is going to be much higher uh, than we initially thought as we head towards three degrees above pre-industrial levels. Could you talk a bit about that?
2: Yeah, there's there's a, there's a couple of things going on around this. I mean, first of all, there was this new study that's come out from the Potsdam Institute and they were looking at what the climate record has shown to date in terms of how much extra participa- uh, per Precipitation, precipitation yes. that you get um, as the temperature warms, and have found has found that climate models have systematically underestimated this. I mean that that's quite interesting because in the last couple of years, well, up until the last couple of years, there was this um, debate about the the way that clouds worked in the climate system, and and for a long time they just assumed that it kind of evened out because clouds reflect light back out into space as well as um, giving a greenhouse effect and keeping warming trapped. And they thought that that would pretty much cancel things out. But the more research they've done on clouds, the more that they've found that that's not actually the case and that they do increase warming. And of course, clouds are associated with precipitation. So I'm not that surprised to see that half of the equation starting to mm. become ironed out as well. Um, also, there was the thing today with... um consumer NZ is suing Z energy for their claims um, mm. and it was pointed out to me earlier today that this is um, something that's been warned to companies that are that are doing climate scenario modeling and making claims and stuff publicly that they need to be very very careful that they' that what they're saying is factual um, in public because they could end up in court over it
1: Catherine, what, what, you know, you, you mentioned the uh, reduction in coal rather than the replacement of coal or the ending of coal. You know, the, the, those that sort of semantic debate. What else are you looking at? Because I, I, I think we're going to get a review, aren't we, of the of how nations are doing against their national um, limits.
2: Yeah, certainly there'll be a lot of talk about uh, following the global stock take on where things are at at the moment, which is largely running behind where they need to be. Um, so there'll be a bit of pressure coming from that. But the other big one they're talking about is the loss and damage fund. So mm. financing for um, developing countries, that's, that's the other big one to watch out for. Yeah,
1: well, that's, that's clearly what ADNOC's going to be doing, is selling them more oil and gas. Brilliant. Very clever.
0: Catherine, thank you very much for jumping on the show. And um, please, for our listeners, look out for this week's wrap-up of climate news from Catherine, uh, which will be coming out tomorrow. Thanks again. Brilliant! Thanks, everyone. See you later. Cheers, and and lovely now to see Robert Patman and Josie Pagani.
1: Robert, we got the news just before we all came on mm. that Henry Kissinger has died this afternoon, or this afternoon our time, at least at at one hundred. I mean, what a, what a, what an extraordinary life! What a remarkable man.
3: Yes, a remarkable man and a divisive one in terms of people's mm. perception of him. Um, regarded. By some people as uh, a totally brilliant diplomat, academic, and also by other people as a war criminal.
1: Mm. And the war criminal aspect is really pretty much around um, the bombing of the the, the the initially secret bombing of Cambodia, right? Up to, to to that was um, one
3: of the issues, but there was yeah. lots of other ones. Um, he had a bit of a kiss up, kick down approach to international politics. He was a realist as uh, mm. international relations. Scholars like to term it. Uh, He believed the world was basically run by great powers. Mm -hmm. And that was probably his downfall as well, because if you look at the way he brilliantly set up the policy of detente between the United States and uh, the Soviet Union, using China as uh, a device of manipulation to induce the Soviets to do business with the United Mm. States, Uh, the the problem was that... uh, (laughs) It was a nice, neat arrangement, but it fell apart because uh, countries in the developing world had their own ideas about their own national sovereignty. Mm. And so you had the spectacle of the United States and the Soviet Union in the second half of the 70s, blaming each other for problems which neither could control, whether it be the overthrow of Haile Selassie in Ethiopia, which America saw the Soviet hand behind, or the overthrow of the Shah in Iran, where, um, again, the the Americans tended to see the Soviets uh, as being present there. Uh, And on the Soviet side, the the Soviets tended to see the American hand behind the ejection of Egypt, their Soviet advisors from Egypt. So what was interesting about Kissinger, I mean, one shouldn't underestimate his achievements, both scholarly and diplomatic, which I think were Herculean. I mean, a a remarkable man. And, uh, yeah, uh, he certainly he, you know, I, I think that many people felt that he was never brought to account uh, yeah. for some of the. You know, he gave the green light to uh, Indonesia's intervention in East Timor. Mm-hmm. He played a key role in approving the carpet bombing of the Viet Cong who were la- la- located in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them, and they were crossing the border, of course. We can we can easily argue <coughs>
1: argue that that. Led directly to the creation of the Khmer Rouge. You know, there was, if, if you if you talk to anybody in Cambodia, they're not terribly keen on um, on Henry Kissinger,
3: but an, an almost interesting person and yeah. uh, a brilliant. You know, he is also a brilliant writer. If you've read his work, it, it you may disagree with it, but it's mm. it's beautifully crafted, diligently researched, and uh, yeah, he's. He's you know, volume three volumes on the Nixon administration, of which he's a member. Mm. Of course, he started off as National Security Advisor uh, under Richard Nixon. This interesting combination of two very insecure people working together—one uh, from the world of Harvard and one from, uh, although he had worked for President Kennedy as well in the the early '60s—and and also one with a you know with a Jewish Eastern Eastern
1: European background who was. Yeah. You know, had a, had a very deeply sort of personal view of of Eastern Europe, the rise of the Soviet Union, and and of communism. Josie, what's what's yeah. what's your sense of that? I mean, you you work particularly in the international affairs area. What's what's your sense of his legacy?
4: He he was a bit like the Queen in the sense that you just thought he was immortal and he'd never go. And suddenly, you know, at a hundred, <laughs> he's finally gone. And you kind of, mm. uh, it, you know, it, 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 you have to get your head around what his legacy is. I mean you know as robert was saying uh, yeah, of course you, re, you know, respect his scholarly expertise It's incredible influence i mean 12 presidents he he mm. advised 12 mm. presidents mm. obama um disliked him intensely i think i mean you never hear mm, obama he say critical things about people but he basically said that his job was to fix the world that kissinger had left behind um oh, yeah. and when Trump, he met with Trump, you know. So also Biden, so it wasn't his last president. But uh, there was a great cartoon. I think it was in the New York Times, where you know there's the thought bubble as he's meeting with Trump, uh, and the thought bubble says, "I miss Nixon." So, you know,
3: <laughs> he's, been, <laughs>
1: he's,
4: he's been around. Um, but yeah, I mean, this the awful, he's the ultimate ultra Machiavellian realist in politics, isn't he? And he's responsible mm-hmm. for that kind of neo, well, I don't even know whether it's neocon because the neocons had a sort of ideology about promoting democracy, I guess. But he, he, it was like, you know, US interests first, even at the at the expense of, let's, you know, uh, supporting um, uh, the destabilisation of Salvador Allende's government in Chile, uh, doing the same in Argentina mm. and kind of heralding in the most brutal military leaders in Argentina. So, you know, when he's at the pearly gates, he's going to have quite a bit of reckoning, I think. <laughs> the number of lives that were lost as a
0: result of his real mm. politique. But also how many lives he had. You know, the the idea that someone is really actively involved in geopolitics at the age of 100, which he clearly was and and is.
3: Yeah, he was running Kissinger Associates and charging, yeah. I understand, hefty consulting fees <laughs> right up to his last six months. In fact, he gave yeah. uh, a very interesting interview in July this year uh, about, the rise, about China because he was regarded as an authority as China and he still had Extremely close relations with both Xi Jinping, mm. and he—I he, think Xi Jinping inherited the Chinese leadership's familiarity with Dr. Kissinger, but also with Putin. I mean, Putin wouldn't hesitate to fly him straight over to Moscow for consultations. And so, uh, yeah, he—he he, he was a remarkable person. Um,
4: so he wasn't an an ideologue, was he?
3: I don't think he was an ideologue, but I think his brand of realism, as I I think there was a lot in what Barack Obama said, that uh, his short-term impact was spectacular, uh, but his long-term impact, some of the things that he did, uh, left severe long-term problems. I think Kissinger, because he saw the world as being run by great powers, possibly underestimated the power of ideas, and I Mm -hmm. think, in a sense... The advent of globalization in the early eighties, where you had technologically driven interconnectedness, uh, began to cut into this autonomy of great powers. And We now live in a century where all powers, great, small, and medium-sized, yeah. are confronted by problems which none of them can solve on their own, which must have been confusing for someone who saw the world as basically run through manipulation of power by great powers. Well also if you mm. if
1: you're a great power person then you're also a, a, an adherent to the idea of, of great power being wielded by great men. you know I mean he was he mm. was part of his own mythology but you know reading recently or relatively recently, I think I talked to you about it, Robert for the 50th anniversary of, of Richard Nixon going to China going to Beijing. I mean the story of Henry Kissinger secretly flying on Frank Sinatra's aircraft to California. To get onto it, get onto another aircraft to to Pakistan, and then going in through Pakistan to to make the first mission, you know, completely secretly. The other thing we should remember about um... well, he was a great womanizer, wasn't he? I wouldn't say womanizer. He was. He was. He had an eye for the ladies. I think is the polite way to say. it. <laughs> yes, that's right. And I think he that great
4: quote he said once where he said you know power. He was the first one who said power is the greatest aphrodisiac or something. So he used that's to right. have these sort of starlets. And he and, said
1: and he was he was regarded as the uh, uh, as the greatest swinger in um, in in uh, Washington until he got married. But of course he went out with a woman called Jill St John for a while. He tried to go out with um zaza Gabor, but the the their kiss was interrupted by the president ringing him um and there was a you know a, a listening
0: of others but yet, power is the great aph- aphrodisiac as you say and that he managed to re- reinvent himself and somehow detach himself from nixon 's poisonous reputation mm. i 've just been watching you know how I try to get away from news by watching. Uh, streaming TV uh, series, but I've loved uh, The Plumbers. I don't know if anyone's seen yeah. that, that, which is yeah. the story of the water great break-ins with uh, Woody Harrelson as one of the main players, but also Fellow Travellers. I'd highly recommend it as a series to watch. It's all mm. about what was happening with during the McCarthy years and uh, the rise of Roy Cohen. Yep. And oh, yeah. uh, all of that stuff w- with the you know the anti-communist republicans w- which is you know where Nixon came from it's sort of amazing to think that uh the death today of uh, uh, Kissinger at the age of 100 is the sort of end of an era in which um he began when the the real threat was Hitler and Stalin and mm. um Prosecuting the Rosenbergs and all of that, and he was still around.
4: You were talking about mm. China. I mean, he, you know, it's not just twelve presidents that he that he had. He 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 met from Mao Zedong to Xi Jinping. He 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 knew all mm. of them, <laughs> so that's yeah. extraordinary.
3: You know, we always say that Nixon was the secretive one, but I'm afraid Dr. Henry Kissinger also had a considerable desire for secrecy. Mm-hmm. And there's the true but stunning story. That when uh, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger hatched this plan between them initially to make an opening to China, uh, that that initiative began in 1969. And the world was stunned when it was announced in 1971. Only six people in the American government knew it. And the Secretary of State at the time, William Rogers, was as surprised as anyone when it was announced. He was completely out of the loop which must have left him feeling pretty isolated.
1: Yeah. Robert, I guess we've got, we've got Kissinger now in the same bucket as George F. Kennan, presumably Andrei Gromyko, the, 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 the longtime Soviet foreign minister, Molotov, mm-hmm. the longtime foreign minister under, under Stalin. Who else would you bracket him with?
3: Well, I think he would be bracketed with the person he wrote his first book on, which was Metternich, the great Austrian mm-hmm. um, Austrian diplomat, but also scholar. Uh, Yeah, I mean, he's a remarkable man and not too many people make the transition from starting in academia to becoming a a successful policy practitioner. You know, he was a man of enormous insights and uh, he had a ferocious temper apparently as well, uh, which (laughs) people around him had to bear the brunt of. But, uh, you know, he did, it was very interesting because Um, his short-term impact could be very, very stunning. You may recall, well, there was the Yom Kippur War in 1973, October 73, Mm. when Egypt and Syria attacked uh, Israel. um, And Israel, uh, it was probably the most evenly contested war. But after the war was concluded, Kissinger used the chance to build bridges with the Egyptian leader. In fact, he assured the Egyptian leader, who was then... Allied to the Soviet Union, that he would not allow Anwar Sadat's army to be massacred as the Israelis were threatening to do in the Sinai. But he gave that private assurance and then he took it upon himself, basically, to squeeze out the Soviets of the mm. Middle East. And again, that was a great, you know, it looked on the face of it, it was brilliant diplomacy. Engaged in what was called shuttle diplomacy immediately after the Yom Kippur War, mm. the Soviets were sidelined, and the Americas America became uh, the dominant power in the Middle East—a position they've largely retained. But it's probably had long-term consequences for not solving the Palestinian-Israeli problem, and so you, I, I think, Obama was pretty right that when he said that, you know, Kissinger did a lot of things which were full of insight and. Very, very opportunist. They mm-hmm. Responded quickly. He had. A, he, he was nimble, but he uh, didn't always think through the long-term consequences, which others had to deal with.
1: Yeah, I wonder whether that's true of Cuba as well. The long-term consequences. You know, the the, the isolation of Cuba, the bullying, which I know started before Kissinger and, and Nixon. But... Oh yeah,
3: I was going to say I wouldn't put that on him uh, yeah. exclusively. Uh, I I think you could make a case that you know, one of the reasons that Castro survived so long was because the United States insisted on putting that very swinging embargo against the Mm. Castro regime, which then gave it legitimacy. Uh, Somebody said to me, an American actually many years ago, if we were seriously interested in toppling Castro, we would remove the embargo and try and do business with them. And the Cubans would then lose any desire to be led by a communist. But anyway, that's another story.
1: And Josie, I would, speaking of towering diplomats and, and people with extraordinary international skill and leadership, we all sort of won a bet about Winston Peters being the foreign minister in our predictions from last week, or at least I did. But uh, <laughs> we all sort of got a, got a bet each way with the, with the David Seymour uh, job share with Winston Peters. I mean, what do you th- make, Josie, of the first few days of this government? We also—I uh, know it's not on an international footing that, that uh, Winston has done this, but you know he's really. Overshadowed to some extent the first few days of Luxon by with these rather intemperate attacks on media.
4: Yeah, I mean, although you could also say that the media have wound it up um, big time, and that's part of the problem. I mean, of course, there's no sense that the 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 public interest journalism fund fifty five million dollars. That it was um, was a was an outright bribe, but there is there is a sense of you know the fact that the media are making it the biggest story at the moment and. You know, therefore, also mm-hmm. amplifying Winston. <laughs> um, it's
3: about us. You kind yeah.
4: of, it, yeah. It's all about us. And and I have seen this um, uh, research. It was a Harvard um, professor. It's called, he did some research on government advertising, media coverage, and corruption scandals. It was called, and he looked at mm-hmm. the link between government funding in um, for media and media bias. And and there is there is evidence that if you've got governments that are, I mean, he look. He was looking at Argentina. Primarily, but if you've got governments that are putting a lot of advertising into public media, um, so they're they're dependent on the on you know the advertising dollar as our media were, um, let alone the public interest um, fund, then you know you do have to be really cognizant of any bias and and the evidence he showed that is when there's government money in uh, public media there is evidence of bias so um, you know it's it, the point Winston Peters is making in a in a in an intemperate way. And using words like bribe, which is just wrong, um, is not completely you know out of out of the field. And the final thing I'd say about it is when uh, NZ, NZME were, were you know given part of that um, fifteen million dollar um, fund. And the idea was that it was it was saving media during, um, you know, during COVID and so on. Well, they they had a capital return, a buyback of of $5.3 million worth of shares. Mm. So, you know, and they were paying a dividend out. So the idea that they, <laughs> they couldn't afford to do this really important mm. stuff, public interest journalism, regional journalism, Maori and Pacific voices and so on, doesn't quite stack up. So there's, there is mm. a story
1: there. Oh, there's absolutely a story there. I was involved in the original and helping New Zealand on air right then. the in Ministry of Cultural Heritage write the original cabinet paper for this. and i and I can tell you that there was absolutely no intention either from mm. the government, including Chris Farfoy or from people like me who were advising on it, to to make it any kind of um, uh, bribery or or to 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 influence coverage in any way. It really was a a very specific. Industry subsidy, if you like, or support, because there was real concern in the government that, particularly with the downturn in advertising that was expected at the beginning of at the beginning of the COVID uh, COVID pandemic, that um, things like court reporting, council reporting, and so on would be would be just erased. I mean, one of the difficulties is it was able to be weaponized partly because of the conditions in which under which the grants were ultimately given.
4: Part of the problem, though, is not the intention. I have absolutely um, no just no um, question that the intent of the fund was noble and um, these are things that should be supported and, and they're important um, bits of journalism. The, the the research that this Harvard professor did is not about the intent, it's actually about the outcome. And that if there is, if, if a public media yep. is so dependent on, on public advertising and NZME were, you know, <laughs> going, putting, doing a $15 million capital return at the time they were taking this fund, so they could afford it.
1: Yeah, I don't think anybody in the media is happy about the way it was allocated.
3: But I'm quite concerned when politicians keep singling out journalists. In a liberal democracy mm-hmm. where you have free media, I find it very rich when a prominent politician uh, says to journalists, uh, you lost. This victimhood thing that populists like to play, I find that deeply disturbing. When you have politicians presenting the media as the enemy, they are undermining democracy. And uh, the, the the media, we may not you know, people in the, you know, I always remember what Harry Truman once said to aspiring politicians don't go into the kitchen if you don't like the heat. If mm. you want to be a democratic politician, don't complain when the media asks you questions. You are paid to receive and answer questions. I have mm. no time for politicians who are always whinging about the media. That's what they're in a democracy, that's what they're there to do. They're to answer questions. Mm. And in fact, the media is the fourth estate. Just imagine the world where politicians can only um, have questions that they agree, that think they're acceptable. I, I think we would have a world which just slipping towards an authoritarian regime.
4: So no one would disagree with that, right? Yeah.
0: For me, this was quite surprising because I was there on the Friday when he singled out Tover O'Brien and said, you lost. Yeah. And this is something that I've, I mean, I've I've followed Winston for many years. I've been to many press conferences. I've um, uh, been at off-the-record events and shared whiskies and, and and beer. He he has spent an awful lot of time with these people. They're not necessarily just work colleagues or people that he is part of, has something to do with in the in public life. These are people he's had, you know, long, boozy conversations with. These are people that, you know, who who in years gone by, he relied on. He needed them. And for him to do this in a public place was extraordinary. Apart from anything else, it felt really ugly and, frankly, sexist that he pointed out and mm. focused on on them. The other thing was he derailed in many ways the the government's attempts to start its term with a you know a smiley face and a strong positive outlook he just looked like the grumpy old uncle at christmas who's just brought everyone down and he did it not just once he did it on monday it's a swearing in and then on tuesday the next time and he really really kept hammering away at it and also this, this, for me, really um, uh, got my goat, so to speak. When I first started as a journalist in 1992 at the Dominion, it wasn't even the Dominion Post then, the Dominion, uh, one of the first things I was told by a, a grumpy old chief reporter was, uh, whatever you do, send anything that mentions Winston Peters to me so that I can read it, because that guy sues everyone. And he has repeatedly for 30 years. If I was to come out in public and said that uh, people who donated money to New Zealand First had bribed Winston Peters, I would be in court. And I've been a director of companies that have been sued by Winston Peters. I've had to worry about whether or not his actions are going to cost me my house. And to watch him as Deputy Prime Minister in that position to single out people to threaten people in interviews with getting them sacked, which is what he did with Jack Tame a few weeks ago, mm. was the worst way to start a new government and to you know, burn up any goodwill there might have been for him. Here endeth my little rant. <laughs> so Josie, it isn't just about us; it's about about
1: the principles. Uh,
4: well, so yes, yeah, so so um, I see my role in this podcast is to offer a slightly different view at times. But um, I, I would on your on your point, um, Robert, you're absolutely right. The the fourth estate is is ap- is, is the core of of a democracy and and holding power to account and um, so you know we have to protect it at, at, at our peril and the checks and balances that are there are there for a reason so yes when you've got populist politicians who who single out media or um, attack the media or the sort of lamestream media you know etc that doesn't mm. mean though that part of part of um, maintaining the trust of mainstream media is really important. And we have seen over the last few years a decline in trust in mainstream media. So that's a problem because the minute people start going, yeah. I don't trust the mainstream media, then they're going off and getting their views. Yeah, know. But
3: is that because of po- the rise of populism and and, pop- and, and politicians deliberately sowing distrust?
4: Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, but that you'd have to believe then the things that populists say are like open bags of crisps, chips, you know, that you just can't resist them, that, you know, someone says mainstream media is terrible, um, you know, and you just go, oh, I believe that. So I don't buy that. I don't buy that That there are, there are a lot of people um, in our democracies who have lost faith in mainstream media. And that's something that I worry about more than I worry about what Winston Peters is saying about. You know, particular journalists. I get that it's a problem.
1: Mm. Christopher Luxon was also very marginal in his in his. You know, he said it, 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 the the impression is that that the that the Pijf was was a bribe or that it did, did influence coverage. You know, he he didn't he didn't slap uh, Winston down at all.
3: No, not yet. But he's going to face a challenge. Mm-hmm. I yes. mean, Christopher Luxon. If if Mr. Peters continues, we don't know. This may be just an opening burst by Mr. Peters, and he may just find himself preoccupied with his new job as Foreign Minister more than anything else. By the way, he's got a lot to do there as well. Mm. Uh, uh, It's a very troubled world as we keep talking about. But um, if he continues in this vein, at some point, the Prime Minister will have to, in order to discipline his coalition, will have to assert his authority.
1: Yeah, what do you think about that, Josie? The 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 Luxon factor, and it's not not just about Peters in this particular thing, but I mean these this this hundred days thing. That's a very corporatist kind, or corporate rather, approach to this. I mean, this, his whole shtick has been about being a chief executive of the government rather than about being a prime minister as such.
4: So, I mean, again, I've got a slightly different view of that because I think that I think that Luxon actually believes that there is a problem with that fund, right? So, the fact that he's not. Um, slapping Winston down for that, um, you know, you could say... Because, again, I just I think that this is just not the biggest story in people's minds at the moment, and yet we're making it a big story in the media, which kind of exacerbates the idea that there's some bias in the media, and that, I think, is mm. a problem. And so I think Luxem deciding not to be bullied by the media to, to slap Winston down... Could actually come across as, um, you know, that he's that he's not going to be led around by the nose by the media. That I mean, I'm just saying that perception could be there.
1: Yeah, um, fair enough. Yeah. But what, what about other issues though, though, Josie, that we've seen in the first three days? Because I, I was very taken aback um, as th- thinking of this. I guess as a as a progressive person, not necessarily a Labour person, but a progressive person, about the pettiness of the the, the various things that are being agreed. In the in the coalition agreement and the kind of the the, the things that national has rolled over on it, you know the situation of maori is quite extraordinarily sort of undermined um, beyond what it has been over the last few years
4: What struck me about the coalition agreement was, on the one hand, there's some really big, vague commitments. Like, one, (laughs) I think there's a quote here, better public services and strengthening democracy. It's like, oh, no, I disagree with that. I mean, you know, no one's going to disagree with that. Uh, And then this really weird detail, like um, um, the smoke-free stuff that none of us saw that coming, um, bringing back pseudoephedrine. Didn't see that coming. Yeah, <laughs> it's a weird one. I mean, there's sort of suddenly there's this really down in the ditch detail, and then these big meaningless sort of statements over the top, um, and then there's things that we kind of suspected, but because they hadn't mentioned it in the campaign, I'd kind of forgotten about it. But getting rid of the productivity commission and mm-hmm. rolling it into this new ministry of regulation. Um, so, so you know, there were a few things there that that kind of sort of stood out to me as a random list of things. Um, But then the things that we knew were going to happen, you know, getting rid of Lake Onslow, light rail um, and so on. So, you know, I guess it's it's kind of what we predicted. There were a few things that were tweaked. There were a few odd weird details that presumably are are sops to New Zealand First and Act, but yeah.
0: I think this issue of deciding to reverse the smoke-free changes, purely really... To buy itself eight or nine hundred million dollars, which it's given up with the foreign buyer's tax, mm. just appeared to be ruthlessly mercantile and punishing. and rightly, the 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 blowback from mm. the uh, medical community, mm. from the academic communities following it is extraordinary. Um, I've been covering it this week, and I have a podcast going out tomorrow uh, via the spin-off in which, uh, I interviewed the academics who did the modelling for the number of lives saved and the amount of money saved from these changes that were legislated last year. We're talking here about uh, nearly 2 million health-adjusted life years mm. that are being saved by this legislation that's now going to be reversed for the sake of seven or $800 million a year in tax cuts, for, especially uh, that are being accelerated for people who are landlords. And th- these are um, changes that would have saved the taxpayer $5 billion over time and increased productivity and the amount of, sort of work and taxes paid by over $5 billion over time. So from, from the point of view of what are your core values as a government about saving money for taxpayers and from a national party point of view of, of not being the nasty party, they've started out with the nastiest thing they could think of. Mm.
4: Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that stood out to me, which we knew was coming, was getting rid of the dual mandate, Reserve Bank dual mandate. And, um, you know, the kind of narrative around that is really confusing. Like either it's that the dual mandate doesn't matter because it doesn't make much difference because the Reserve Bank would consider unemployment.
1: Maybe explain just briefly, Josie, what the dual mandate does.
4: Yeah, so, so, you know, in the old days, we had simply the... The inflation target um, of what two percent, I think it was, um, and that and and that was only that. So. The problem with that, which other countries like the US, I mean, UK, they all have dual mandates now, is that you could have a situation like COVID, where you've got a reserve bank that's trying to um, uh, you know, will increase interest rates to slow the economy down while the government's putting heaps of stimulus in to keep jobs mm. going and keep businesses up front. So you end up with a push-pull, push-pull, one cancels out the other, crazy. So you know, we the, the Labor government adopted the dual mandate, which was that you have to think about, you know, employment levels and the state of the economy as well as inflation, which seems to me perfect sense. So... National saying well, we're going to get rid of that because that's why we ended up with such a high stimulus and, and uh, interest rates weren't going up high enough because Adrian Orr was kind of working glove in hand with Grant Robinson during COVID. Um, well, the problem with that, is, you know, on the one hand, they're saying we don't need a dual mandate because a Reserve Bank Governor like Adrian Orr will think about unemployment and the economy anyway, as well as inflation, so we don't need it. Or they're saying that it's terrible because it, will, it means that we won't focus on on inflation and we'll have all these muddled mandates. So, you know, we knew it was coming. But, um, yeah, I, I just think it's it's kind of going back to the 80s. Yeah, we've done that. We had a single mandate mm. before and it didn't work.
0: Yeah. And unfortunately, from for National's point of view, uh, Adrian Orr has come out of the blocks with his first decision under the new government as a hairy-chested inflation fighter who's never going to cut interest rates. And the, and one of the problems for National is that now they face a summer where they had hoped to feel some relief, you know, falling inflation, maybe even some cuts in mortgage rates, higher house prices, you know, phew, we've got a new government, we all feel better. Instead, we're going to have a summer where mortgage rates stay high and councils and a whole bunch of people around the country are going, uh... I don't have any direction or help on funding all these water assets. We've got these extra 120,000 people. You expect me to pay for it? No thanks. Hmm. Here's a big rates increase and by the way I've just put up the parking fees and um I'm going to charge you more for your water. Suddenly the government elected on you know cost of living, on getting interest rates down, on um you know trying to boost the economy Suddenly you've got stalled investment because no council uh, is able to plan because they don't know what's going to happen to the three waters. They have no idea about the RMA. It's all up in the air. And the government itself doesn't have a clear idea on how it's going to fund all this stuff. Meanwhile, as the Reserve Bank said yesterday, you've got a migration coming in and a net migration of 120,000 a year. In fact, when you look at the The raw numbers of people with temporary work visas, it's 200,000 a year. We're not building enough houses. As we saw today, More the building consents are falling sharply, again, because there's no certainty about the funding pipelines for this infrastructure. And so a government elected on cost of living and getting mortgage rates down is going to see mortgage rates stay up, the cost of living rise, and a whole bunch of its natural supporters screaming at them going, what are you doing? Yeah.
1: I think that the removal of co-governance, the threats to about hapuapua, the changes in language, are going to have potentially a really huge and unexpected, unpleasant rebound in New Zealand society. Is that am I exaggerating that?
4: I think. Well, I mean, hapuapua was on hold anyway. It had been put on hold. I think. Last year, right? So, um, and and I know that everyone's having a panic about it. I, I I think what I'm hearing, and and again, we've got two choices with this: either either you go, this is terrible, we've got to fight it. And, you know, I've got some friends who were saying, you know, who work um, in, with Māori businesses saying You've got to, you're have got you going to have to choose. You're either a Māori business or you're a corporate. You're going to have to fight, one or the other. Um, yeah. Now, either you decide you're going to fight or you go, well, what is it that they're really targeting? And I think what they're, what they're really targeting is not like get rid of te Māori. I mean, Shane Jones said this on um, Breakfast TV this week where he, I think he handled the question quite well. He said, I'm bicultural I'm bilingual, I speak the language fluently, um, and I want people to learn the language, that's, you know, and I, and, and I want that to happen, but it's not a religion. And I don't want it to be, I don't want the government, I don't want, he was talking about waka kotahi, um, I don't want NZTA or waka kotahi to be focused on the right use of the Macron above fixing the roads in the, nor- in the north where my family live, right?
1: Yeah, well, I don't think... OK, so I, t- I talked to a very prominent uh, Maori person this week, a, a quite famous artist, and he said, you know, the trouble with Winston and and Shane is that they come from a generation of Maori who believed that being white was what really mattered and would make them successful. And I, I, I think we're going to see a really unpleasant... See, I think a, a really patronising, well, I'm not going to tell I you who it was. And I I you've I, got I, it's, <laughs> it's not me saying that, it's this, this other person. But let, let, let me just ask, bring in Robert on international affairs. Robert, um, you wrote a piece this week for the South China Morning Post about uh, the risks of the, the Israel-Gaza conflict and particularly the risks to, to Biden. Do you want to elaborate about that a little bit?
3: Well, yes, I think uh, I think what's interesting is that Mr. Biden made what appeared to be a very safe political choice at the outset of the crisis. He gave almost unconditional support for Israel's response following the appalling, horrendous Hamas attack on the 7th of October. But there are signs that uh, Mr. Biden has misjudged the situation spectacularly. That was very much a domestic political Uh, interpretation of the right thing to do. And uh, it seems to have unraveled, uh, I think, uh, not only within the United States, where people have so many different options for viewing what's happening in the Middle East, uh, but also, I think uh, the the American position has been seen as hypocritical. Uh, The Biden administration kept stressing the need for uh, the law, laws of wars to be observed, and many people noted that America was providing almost uh, uh, blanket support for Israel's response. And of course, the thing that's really stung this reaction, the backlash, has been the, the sheer number of civilian casualties in Gaza. And uh, it, it's interesting, I think there are real risks to the administration. This has been, as I pointed out in the article, Uh, I went through four major factors which suggest that it's backfiring on the administration, but the fourth one is perhaps the most important, which is it's been a strategic windfall for America's global rivals, namely China and Russia, who've both been able to capitalise the sense of discontent within the global south that the United States has come across as a partisan power rather than playing the role of a global superpower, which is able to reconcile uh, diverging interests within a region which they're involved. So it, it, it's, uh, you know, the, one of the problems that Mr. Biden faces is that he had no lack of knowledge about Mr. Netanyahu's far-right government, and yet he's gave tremendous support. And now, of course, the Americans are making some real... They've actually laid down a series of red lines in the last week or so, which are really interesting. Uh, for example, uh, the Secretary of State, uh, Anthony Blinken, said... Uh, there cannot be an Israeli reoccupation of Gaza, uh, said that the Palestinians must play a key role. They mustn't be displaced. Thirdly, the Palestinians must be the ones, it won't be Hamas, but it must be a Palestinian authority that governs Gaza. Uh, And and, and we've heard another, a fourth red line added by the US Mm. uh, UN representative uh, who said that there can be no more settlements in the occupied territories. Now, this is a Mm. pretty strong statement, but it shows to the extent which the Americans are now trying to retrieve a situation which I think they mishandled from the outset.
1: But does that not, Robert, does that not challenge you? I was wondering whether it actually challenges the pitch that you made that it's actually bad for Biden, but that, that again, there may be good that can come out of this hideous conflict now because of this of this pressure for a two-state solution.
3: I, I say in the article, uh, I reserve judgment about the domestic consequences, but I'm thinking about the mm-hmm. international I think uh, America has been, since 9 11, in slow decline in terms of its international standing. Uh, I'm just saying, I don't think the way the Biden administration handled this crisis has done anything to boost international confidence outside the United States about its handling of the situation. And, uh, you know, in a sense, Biden would say, well, all the Europeans backed us, but then now the Europeans are also rowing back on their position. Mm. And so, you know, uh, I'm pleased that the Americans are having second thoughts because it would be very costly if they persisted in supporting a policy, a military approach to a political problem with huge casualties of innocent people involved. But, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. And and the fact is that I'm pleased the Biden administration is now stressing, I mean, that there must be a political solution. Mm. We can't go on for this tit-for-tat violence forever. So prediction, will, will we be back to war on the weekend? Well, that's a really difficult one. Uh, the Americans say they will back the resumption of the war, but they that may be a, for public consumption that, that all the signs are privately that they're doing everything they can to get the humanitarian mm. pause extended. So it, it again, is a sort of, uh, almost a sort of sight schizophrenia about American policy at the moment. All right. Bernard, I
1: think we've gone a bit over time. So I, I don't actually have a skateboarding dog. Do you have a skateboarding dog today?
0: No, it's one of those weeks where I didn't have time for the skateboarding dog. I'd just like to say thank you very much to all of you for jumping onto the show and at uh, short notice thank you, um, talking about and um, uh, wonderfully about Kissinger. And I wish we could go on for several hours to talk about all the things that the government's done in the last uh, couple of weeks. Josie, thank you very much for coming on. Robert, uh, wonderful to see you. you. Uh, And uh, Peter, thanks thanks again. I'll see
1: you in my front room shortly, Bernard.
0: (laughs) Thanks everyone. (laughs) See you. you. Bye. you. Bye Bye.